it's really important that while we're having this conversation, we really have a clear understanding that we can be critical of Israel and its policies towards Palestine and not be anti-Semitic because we have a theological mandate for liberation, which includes Jewish people, which includes the people of Israel, as well as the people of Palestine. Hi, this is Michael Tino, and I'm a minister at the Church of the Larger Fellowship, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you perspective and allows you to experience the power of Unitarian Universalism at work in your life. Enjoy the message. Welcome, beloveds. Welcome to another episode of The View. Today's episode, we will be talking about the discord that's going on in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine. We encourage our listeners to take care of your hearts and souls while we have this discussion. We know that this topic can be very activating for folks, and we are intending to try and have the conversation with nuance and with care, but please take care of your hearts as you enter into this space. Welcome. I'm Christina Rivera, she, her pronouns, and I'm coming to you from my ancestral land on Borinquen, also known as Puerto Rico. How's it going where you are, Michael? It is a beautiful fall day here in Peekskill, New York, about 35 miles north of New York City on the lands of the Kichewan and Wappinger peoples. How are you, Asia? Hi, I'm Asia Hauser in Seattle, Washington, land of the Coast Salish people. It's mixed, right? I've been sick to my stomach for the past few weeks, and life goes on here in the United States where they're not living in a war zone. So uh, it's mixed. That's how I feel. Uh, I know we're going to dive into it. So DC, how are you? Hi, folks. I'm DC Fortune. I am coming to you from Northumberland, Pennsylvania, which is at the confluence of the north and west branches of the Susquehanna River, the ancestral home of the Susquehannock people. Yeah, we live in challenging times, and today is going to be a challenging conversation, I am sure. And yeah, I want to reiterate what Chris said, which is everybody take care of your hearts during this next hour. Janine, how are things out there in the Zona? Hello, friends. I'm Janine Gelsinger, you share pronouns, and I am here in Phoenix, Arizona, the Unseda Autumn Territory. I'm doing all right. I was excited to see a lot of your adventures last week at Loretta Falcon. And thank you all. I think we're going to forego the roundup today and think we'll hit Loretta Falcon next week. So we wanted to start off the show today talking a little bit about what is and isn't anti-Semitism, because it's really, really easy to have a conversation about Israel and Palestine and have it evolve into being called anti-Semitic. And so I think it's important that folks understand that anti-Semitism is a very real and um, troubling part of particularly the U.S. right now. And anti-Semitism is absolutely something that we are in the fight against and are trying to eradicate as 
a people that hold a, a theological mandate for liberation. Anti-Semitism is not criticizing the policy of Israel. That is not in itself anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is the belief that the Jewish people do not have a right to exist and that it is beholden to people to live their lives based on that erroneous belief. And one of the reasons I'm so vehement about making sure that we know what anti-Semitism is, is when we were in Charlottesville and I was on the front line with other religious leaders against the Unite the Right folks, the white nationalists that were there, they very much had a message of anti-Semitism. The things that they were shouting right into my face with guns drawn were anti-Semitic slogans that I will not repeat. And that is real. That is a real danger. The synagogues in Charlottesville and other areas regularly, just as part of their operating budget, have security because of the threats threats carried out um, of violence against synagogues. I remember earlier this, this year, we were talking about violence that was coming into Unitarian Universalist congregations and spaces as though this had never happened before in, in churches. And that's just not true. If we look to our, our Jewish brethren and siblings, they have policies in place for security because they have to. And so I think it's really important that while we're having this conversation, we really have a clear understanding that we can be critical of Israel and its policies towards Palestine and not be anti-Semitic because we have a theological mandate for liberation, which includes Jewish people, which includes the people of Israel, as well as the people of Palestine. Michael, you wanted to have a word as well. Please. Yeah, I just wanted to, to briefly add that part of the way that anti-Semitism lives in this world and in people's bodies is in the generational trauma of attempted genocide against the Jewish people. And that's real too, right? And it's one of the reasons why having this conversation sparks such intense feelings, whether, whether or not do it carefully, whether or not we do it well, and we're trying our best to do it carefully and to do it well, that that generational trauma um, is real in the way it lives and our, and, and our hearts are with our siblings who are carrying that. So I'm not Palestinian. I was born in Egypt. My kids are half Arab and half Jewish. And this has never been far from my reality in terms of understanding that anti-Semitism is, is pretty more rampant than I think white people and people in general want to believe. And Islamophobia and anti-Arab rhetoric is pervasive and destructive. And the thing that I, I think that's been weighing heavy on my heart is how quickly we go to annihilation, quite literally and figuratively, that yes, a catastrophic awful terrorist attack happened in Israel, I believe it was Saturday, October 7th. The United States on 9-11 had a catastrophic terrorist attack. The United States decimated two countries. We, we did not get rid of terrorism. 
I don't necessarily have the answer, but I know trying to annihilate an entire country or an entire group of people will not bring about any measure of reducing terrorism. I know there are hostages being held right now and that is terrifying and, and scary and all the things and annihilating a group of people, annihilating the Palestinians and wiping Gaza, raising it to the ground is not going to in any way, not only not bring peace, but it will create as it's been since for 70 years, generational trauma to children being born. I think the thing that's been almost impossible is set, because of US foreign policy and the right-wing Israeli government that we really need to name, most Israelis are against. There have been demonstrations almost weekly since Netanyahu came into office. So I want to be clear that I understand most of the Israeli population does not support the, the fervent and vile right-wing uh, policies that are destroying entire groups of people. Like here, do we want to be defined by fucking Trump and by the right wing of the U.S. government? So this is not about the entire Israeli population who are not behind this. And, and here's what I'll tell you. I saw somebody comment on social media. People in the United States need to understand that this is directly impacting what's going to happen in our government. I'm already hearing how many people are not going to vote for Biden anymore. And don't underestimate the Arab vote, because just to give you a little reminder, when Hillary Clinton was running against Bernie Sanders and Michigan, white women were so angry at me because I said, you don't understand how much Arabs hate Hillary Clinton. And they'd say, oh, you're just a misogynist. You have internalized. And so when unexpectedly Bernie beat her in Michigan, I said the highest population of Arabs in this country is in Michigan. So you can choose not to listen to what to what people are saying, or you can at least listen and try to understand where how complex this is. But here's what's not complex. Fucking genocide. We need to stop fucking genocide. So right now I'm gonna leave it there. Can we please not fucking continue this genocide fucking behavior as human beings? I think that's one of the it's been interesting because I've followed the news both in the US and elsewhere in the world to see how it's being positioned. So if you follow Al Jazeera as a media outlet in the West, it very quickly became the Israel-Hamas war, right? But if you're following from anywhere else in the world, it is the Israel-Gaza war. And I think that that really telling about how politicized this genocide is, right? And the ways in which just sudden, subtly and not so subtly, so you have how it's being positioned, but then you also have the propaganda that is just out and out lies. The propaganda against children and the ways in which they were reportedly being treated it was absolutely untrue. And the Israeli news outlets had to come back and say that we can't confirm any of those reports that we put out, but they're already out there in the world. They're in people's consciousness, right? And the ways in which, yes, this may be the largest loss of 
Israeli life since the Holocaust. But as soon as you say that, you're pitching the Holocaust against what the Gazan people and the Palestinian people are in trying to survive a genocide. And I, I think that that's really problematic. And I mean, we always need to be critical about our information sources, but in this is super, super important to be making sure that your information sources are varied, particularly varied outside of the West. I think too, it's important to look at the difference there. If this uh, violence is seen as Israel battling Hamas terrorists, and all of the people that they're killing are Hamas terrorists, then that's one thing. But we know that's not true, right? We, we know that's not true. There are two and a half million people in Gaza. And I'm a kind of person that I need to visualize this, right? I need to get a sense of this. So I looked it up. Uh, Gaza is the size of Las Vegas. Okay. It's about twice the size of Washington, D.C. For those of us on the East Coast, there are two and a half million people there. And there are thousands of Israeli tanks amassed at the northern border of it, ready to roll into it. Israel told 1.1 million people that they needed to evacuate northern Gaza. And the people started going south, and then Israel started bombing southern Gaza. These are not, there might be some people who were wrongdoers in that, but 1.1 million people are the Palestinian people. It's 60% people under 18, the, the population of Gaza. And so the, the death toll that is mounting in Gaza are uh, innocent Palestinian people. And if the framing is Israel versus Hamas, Israel versus terrorists, if that's the framing, then we miss the fact that it's innocent Palestinian people that are being victimized here, that are dying, that are being killed by the policies of Israel, by the bombs from Israel, by the tanks from Israel. Um, and so I have problems with every media source. And I think Chris is right to say we need to listen to, to as many as we can to see this. And I think we can talk a little bit about what is the U.S. Um, culpability in all of this, right? In all of this. <laughs> what is our culpability in sending $10 billion in military aid? What is our culpability in shifting our fleets into a more aggressive position in the region? What is our culpability in our policy that continues to stoke the fires of war? That's on us, right? That, that is directly on us. We have the ability to change that policy and make that policy more nuanced. And I think that that's what is being called for. So there is a demonstration in Washington tomorrow calling for a ceasefire a ceasefire to give time for folks to, yes, of course, to work through the issues, but 
give time for people to seek medical aid, for people to get food and water and fuel, to be able to reunite families that have been dispersed. I don't think folks know how quickly when war and terrorism come to your town, how difficult it is for families to stay together. You can be running down the street and lose sight of the person who is most beloved to you, and you may not see them again. They hopefully are still alive, but you may not see them again for months. If we just even take a look at the reunification process, how long did it take us in the U.S. to match the babies that were ripped from mothers' arms at the borders and reunite them with their families? And that was under, quote unquote, the best of circumstances. So you can imagine what it's like in these areas yeah, and Janine says, we still haven't completely done those reunifications, and we may never. There are children who have been irreparably harmed and will never be back with their families. It's similar to what's happening in Israel and Palestine right now. And so the ceasefire, giving time for folks to find one another, find aid, find a moment to breathe is super important. I think my question or maybe one thing I want to talk about here because throughout the last few weeks and really I mean for a while right the world feels simultaneously like there are great things that personally I feel good about and happy about and fulfilled and yet the world on a macro level there's just so much pain that when I think about it I, I get like right now, my energy is just, I just want to cry because there's such a helplessness, right? So we're faith leaders. How do we show up with a pastoral response um, that doesn't cause more harm? I reposted someone else's social media post, somebody saying, I'm asking you to understand why innocent Palestinians should live. You are asking me to understand why Israel should continue to kill. Read that again. And then someone commented, and I actually erased their comment because no one's having this kind of debate in a comment section, something like, you're asking me to forget atrocities of Israelis or of Jewish people. Read that again. And I'm like, you ran into the point and blew past it because we can't keep making excuses for murder and killing and even in retaliation because it does not stop it. And so, and I'm asking genuinely, what is the pastoral response? You all know my thing here. I'm not neutral. I do not have neutral feelings. I also don't want to keep causing harm. And there is clearly a fucking power imbalance here. The Palestinians do not have and have not, I don't think they've ever had a standing army, certainly sure as shit, not in the last 70 years. So at some point, there has to be a reality check here that a genocide is happening, ethnic cleansing is happening, and we have to stop it. And there is the generational trauma of those who, who have lived in really fear. If, whether or not even Jewish people lost family members in the Holocaust, there is still the collective fear of what this world has done to Jewish people for generations and for a very, very, very long time. Yes. What do we do? So that's my question to you all. 
I don't, I don't have an answer except I know that it, it makes me deeply sad. And what are we called to do? I know we're called to fight and ask for a ceasefire, but how do we even get to a place of bearing witness and showing up and being able to see the humanity of the Palestinians? How do we get people to see the humanity of the Palestinians? Of course, we want to eradicate anti-Semitism. And the way to eradicate anti-Semitism is not to annihilate the Palestinian people. I want to speak a little bit as a white person who is committed to racial justice and a faith leader. And maybe this is a bit of a self-call-in as well. But the last week or so, I had a lot going on in my personal life. Big, huge career changes and a book that I'd been working on launching and all of the things. I'm also super sick. I have this terrible head cold. And I noticed how easy it was for me to stay out of it, to not have a public comment, to not engage if I didn't want to. And what tremendous privilege that is as someone who does not have Muslim or Jewish ancestry or family, as someone who is several generations removed from immigrants. And I also watched as our colleagues tried to find the right thing to say online. And I feel that too, right? What's the right thing to say? What's the thing that I can say that no one will get mad about? What if I repost this poem that says, killing babies is wrong and genocide is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and everything is wrong. And so everything I said is completely unimpeachable. No one can get mad. But I think about conflict avoidance as white supremacy culture and how our need for comfort and our need to not be wrong and our need to not enter conflict as white people is preventing some of us from grappling with the truth of what's happening. And if we stay unwilling to be messy or to be wrong or to have anyone get upset at us, then how are we living out our call? How are we living out our faith as, as faith leaders? How are we digging for justice? How are we being leaders? And if we keep looking for the perfect thing to say that no one can argue with us, then we'll never touch this issue. I really appreciated Reverend Sophia, our president's invitation to not turn away unless we must, right? To take care of ourselves, but to really dig in and grapple. And I think this is another time where it is too easy for too many of us to say, well, this isn't my work. This is on the other side of the world. My work is local here in Arizona. But having these conversations is going to be messy, but it's what we're called to do. True. And I think part of the complexity here is that one of the other things Reverend Dr. Sophia Bittencourt, our president, said, is that this situation is nuanced and complex and deeply rooted in history that not everybody gets all of the details of, right? So in order to say anything that's real, 
you have to engage all of that complexity. And you can't do that in a soundbite, right? You can't do that in like a little Facebook post or a poem, right? You can't, it, it's really hard to do that. So I feel like those of us with the, the and I, I will own that it's the privilege to not say something. Those of us with the privilege to not say something, we're frozen by that complexity. Yeah, I feel like for those of us in UU community, if we're part of the Church of the Larger Fellowship or part of a congregation, we are set up to have these kind of conversations. We have covenants. We have a commitment to spiritual growth in our communities and to supporting each other in that spiritual growth. And so we do have the spaces to have these conversations. And yes, there's some things are tough to have online. That doesn't mean that we don't still do it. But we have spaces where we churches are literally set up to grapple with this kind of thing. And I hear the, I don't want to touch it. It's so complicated and messy, but I went to a teach-in the other day about a Palestinian teach-in right at ASU because, okay, well, if there's something I don't know that I need to understand the nuance and complexity, then I need to learn, then I need to lean in and listen and learn more so that I do understand more of the complexity and history so that I can have a position and a response. And if I don't have one, that's okay. I can listen, but to just avoid it, I don't know. This is the one conversation, well, this being the Palestinian occupation, how the Israeli government has behaved at any given time is the one thing that is not addressed head on in you spaces. Yes, there are the, what is it, Justice for the Middle East, I, I forgot, UU Justice for Peace in the Middle East or something, but I actually heard a UU minister call them the I Hate Israel group. And I'm like, that is actually not what their name is. So there's not even the capacity for, like, how do we truly have these conversations? Because you know what, if we're going to give this situation the same kind of critical thinking we understand about slavery and the founding of this nation it was the british and the united states who were like here's a plot of land it was political in terms of yes it is biblical in but all the abrahamic faiths are represented in the middle east let's be clear it's islam christianity and judaism of course but this was something deeply political that absolutely was, and part of it, if I want to add humanity to politics, there was a collective guilt of the world looking away. Wow, what is it? 11 million people were murdered in the Holocaust, six of them Jewish, 6 million. So the complexity of how this, and there were Palestinians and Muslims and Christians living in Palestine, basically left alone until the British came in and said, here's what we're going to create a Jewish state. Since then, it hasn't gone well from day one because there were people already living there. But even saying that much, I'm I, there is no neutrality for this because the tensions are high because we do are talking about deep, deep, deep generational trauma, especially in terms of Holocaust survivors. And now we're talking about generational trauma among Palestinians. Half of Gaza, of 2 million people, are under 18. Um, what is it? Almost half are under 18. And so we are talking about children being murdered 
and not only families being broken up, but children being murdered and the world saying, but Hamas. This is impacting all of us, whether or not we wanna believe it. I believe in the collective unconscious and there is just a volatility. There's either deep sadness or deep rage. Um, and, and I don't want to leave out the evangelical Christians who are running around rooting for Israel. That is a gross, their not even so hidden agenda is they want Jesus to come back and anybody who doesn't get convert goes to hell. So this is not even, I wouldn't necessarily count the evangelical Christians friends of the Jewish people. So let's be clear. And so to me, it's like, how do we center humanity? We need to bring back humanity and Brown and black people are 100% of the time seen as less than. And so this annihilation, when we went into Afghanistan and decimated Afghanistan, the lies about weapons of mass destruction about Iraq, and now Gaza is, is being annihilated because people there are brown and they're black and they're not white. So we, we need to address the white supremacy that is also at play here. So true. That was actually the next thing I was, I was going to briefly <laughs> talk about is the fact that for a long time, folks who were Jewish did not identify as white. Like they were not part of the white supremacist. Nope. That has been something that has been relatively recent in terms of, and not always with the permission of, of Jewish folks, right? Like, let's be clear. And it is also true that Palestinian people are black and brown. That is without question. And one of the questions I ask myself, because once you say, I believe in the, the right of the Palestinian people to have self-determination, folks almost always, well, then you're saying what happened last Saturday was okay. And I said, I'm not saying it's okay. I believe in the human rights of innocent people not to be targeted. And I also try and think to myself, what would my ancestors have done to try and remain free? To try and not be colonized. To try and, if they had known that what was coming at them was genocide, what would I have been okay with as resistance? And I don't have an, an exact answer for that, but I know that the answer is so complicated and so complex that I almost don't want to look at it. I almost don't want to be truthful with myself as to what is allowed to not be annihilated. And when I say aloud, I think that from aloud from my soul, aloud from our common humanity. I don't know. I don't know. I, I would love to know what this world would have looked like with the Taino people still intact, with the Aztec and Mayan people still intact, with people from Africa having not been separated from their language and custom, culture and custom and families and brutalized, I, I wonder if we had seen it coming and really known what would I have been okay with as resistance. Wow, Chris, thank you. 
I've been listening and I don't have any wisdom to add to this. I know I'm serving a congregation in central Pennsylvania, which is incredibly, incredibly white. And the synagogue in the town next to me was evacuated on Friday before Shabbat players, prayers because there was a bomb threat. And honestly, I'm not convinced that there's a, a, a terribly nuanced understanding of the crisis in the Middle East here in rural Pennsylvania. I honestly think that the congregation Beth L was the easiest, most visible group of people who were different that could be targeted. Because I'm pretty sure the folks here don't have a strong understanding or a nuanced understanding of the plight of the Palestinian people. It's a very conservative place where I live here. And it seems more like any excuse to be mean to somebody who's different is taken advantage of. And the people in my congregation are now worried about if somebody comes to our church and wants to hurt our church or hurt our people or interrupt our stuff. And we as religious leaders, what do we tell our people? Gone are the days where we can say, oh, that won't happen. And so how do we balance as ministers trying to be open to people who need our ministry and our message and keep our people as safe as we possibly can. And all of this is leaving me feeling terribly ill-equipped for all of it. And I just know that I look around and I see so many of my friends hurting. And what I'd really like to do is give so many people really deep hugs but aside from the personal connection of hugging someone and the benefits of that, it, it doesn't seem to do a whole lot for what's happening in the Middle East right now. I think anybody who claims they've got an answer is an idiot in this situation. Some of the information about what we can do calling for a ceasefire. And again, that is at this moment what is agreed by all parties on the ground in terms of local organizing what is needed. So any support that you all can give for that protest rally witness, call it what you want, and also a call for Biden to reevaluate the support and dollars that are going towards this genocide right now. If you're a, I want to call my congressperson kind of person and you're in the United States, Corey Bush of Missouri and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan have introduced a resolution into Congress. Congress is at a stalemate right now, but they've introduced a resolution calling on, on the U.S. Congress to support a ceasefire and also to pause sending more funding to escalate the, the genocide that's happening. There's legislation pending in the U.S. Congress to support that end. And also, the president is about to ask for lots of money 
and they have to be able to say no. And if you feel like you are at a place right now where you can't call your congressperson or attend a rally because you don't know enough yet, then your job is to learn, is to learn and learn with others in your community. Have those conversations. I know in Arizona, Black Lives Matter, Phoenix Metro, Mass Liberation, Arizona, all of our partners are doing teach-ins right now because they're clear on their Palestinian support and there are opportunities to learn. There's opportunities online, but don't look away. Dig in because if you can't take it you don't know enough and that's your barrier, then there's many places to learn. All right, any final thoughts? before we close out. I think we should stop killing. Can we just, can we just, in all places, in all forms, can we just? Folks, let's ground ourselves as we go out from this space, however that means, wherever you are, if you need to sit, lean, lie down, stim, whatever it is that can lead you into the holy right now, I invite you to do so, to breathe in and out in a way that is comfortable for you. Spirit and life of love, we are struggling. We are struggling in this modern day catastrophe of climate of seeking your wisdom and liberation because we are not doing it well. The decimation, the annihilation of a people is never okay. It never will be okay. We are all diminished by it. Help us to see our interconnectedness. Help us to know that the love we put out, we get back tenfold. Help us to also realize that the hate we put out, we get back a thousandfold. Help us to remember that in all of our face, our most sacred promise to one another is to care and love one another, to reach out to those who have less, who have not the power to keep themselves and their families together, prospering. That is our responsibility up and up and up until we reach this heaven on earth that we can build if we only are able to destroy the hell that we have already built. Help us remember that we are here for one another, that our lives are too short to be taken in vain. Help us to remember the love the love that can overcome the fear if we will only allow it. May we all take the light 
refresh in the shadows and remember to seek peace and seek justice. Amen. Until next week, our friends, be well. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give generously to this ministry. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit clfuu.org backslash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review so that others can find us. Thanks again for listening.